having a great culture is a really important thing. And, and they, one of the things David said was, we want to bring humanity back to air travel. I used to be, I used to run a, a big company um, and I spent 40% of my time recruiting new people. And, and there were a lot of things to do, but I just said, this is the most important thing I do is who I bring in to the company. So I spent a lot of time on college campuses. I think also hiring young people is one way to do that because you can then train them in the values. And young people can do more than a lot of people think. You don't need to get somebody that's a 40 year experience engineer to do everything. You can hire young people, train them in your culture, bring them up and do some of that. The only failures that tend to really last a long time are failure of character and failure of effort. Hey, my dear listeners, welcome back to Inspire Someone Today your platform for amplifying inspiration. With me today is someone who has seen planes and carriers soar into the sky, much more than all of us in our lifetime. He has served on more than three dozen boards over the past 45 years. A man who has owned multiple hats, a teacher, investor, board member, author, and much, much more. This is my absolute privilege and joy to welcome Joel Peterson on Inspire Someone today. Joel, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Sri. Good to be with you. Likewise, Joel. I think with such a rich background, rich experience, I'll jump right in, Joel. And I'll start off with a heavy question for you, which is, having been on board for major corporations over the last four decades, how have you seen businesses changing, reinvigorating, and some of the pitfalls that you felt could have been easily avoided by some of these businesses? So business is always business where you're really trying to provide value to customers at a cost to them that is less than what it's worth to them. So business is a simple thing, but the society has become much more complex. And so business is then expanded to have broader societal duties than just providing uh, returns to shareholders. Uh, that's still a primary objective. And so a fiduciary duty to shareholders is still kind of your number one job as a board. But you have to think about, you're really providing meaningful work to employees. You're providing uh, jobs for your community, providing a better environment and society. And so I think uh, corporate citizens are really citizens of the world. And so I think board members have to think about that. And they are. They're, they're doing more and more of that. But still, I don't think they should forget that their primary duty is as uh, to secure returns for shareholders. And in this process, uh, in the last four decades that you have seen the boards evolving, businesses evolving, how has the boards and businesses evolved to pivot into the larger good of the society? Well, so it depends on the boards. You know, different ones have different uh, things that they provide to the community. For example, at JetBlue, uh, we actually said, how can we make our communities better? And we invited our employees. We had 23,000 employees uh, to uh, help build parks, help build schools. Uh, it, when hurricanes hit, we delivered hot meals. Uh, and it was all volunteer time. When I left uh, three years ago, 
we had given, our employees had given a million hours, volunteer hours to the community. And it actually tied them in more deeply to the community. So I think providing opportunity, people aren't selfish. They are selfish in some ways, but that's not all they are. They really want meaning. And so I think you can provide opportunities for people to do that kind of thing. So we had community outreach and ways to to do that. That that was easy as an airline because we were very public facing and people knew who JetBlue was. It helped JetBlue uh, and it helped the communities. Uh, in other companies, it's it, it can be different things. Sometimes our products, I, I'm on the board of a company that is a training company. And when COVID hit, we provided training for free online to a bunch of people. Uh, so people could sign up as they were trying to, as they were really struggling with, you know, how do you manage life and jobs? You know, we provided free training. So it, de- it depends on the circumstances, on the products of the company. But I think always being on the lookout for how can you make people's lives better is a really good corporate objective in addition to making a profit. Absolutely. And you did mention about JetBlue. You were at the helm of JetBlue for many decades. JetBlue was always been a challenger brand and created this uniqueness around it, which is around culture and customer. Share with us the strategy of building culture in an industry that had a reputation for bad customer service. How did you go about changing this whole perspective through JetBlue? Well, so let me first say that I wasn't really at the helm. At the helm, I happened to be the chairman, uh, which means that I chaired the board, and I was on the board for twenty years. Uh, so I had a role there. But the founder, we had a founder, who was a wonderful fellow by the name of David Neeleman, who's actually founded a bunch of airlines. So uh, I don't want to take too much credit of that. But but having a great culture is a really important thing. And, and Dave, one of the things David said was. We want to bring humanity back to air travel, which sounds like a very simple thing. But if you really think about how do you make your agents friendly? How do you make flight attendants uh, accommodating? Uh, and so we gave people training in um, hospitality management. So when people would come for their training at JetBlue, we actually had hospitality management training for our flight attendants, which was a unique new way to do it. But then we tried to really have nice people. We hi- It starts out with hiring really nice people who have experience, you know, in customer service. And then I, I did something that I did. I never made a big deal about it, but I gave all of my board fees uh, to the employees of the company. So we had an emergency fund. So if, if something happened bad in their lives, you know, there was a, a bunch of money that they could tap into that would pay for funeral offense, uh, expenses or hospital or whatever. And they were Board fees that would normally have been paid to me, I paid into this fund instead of taking the board fees. And that just sort of set a standard that says we're each other's stewards. We take care of each other. And that adds a, a level of culture. And I think, you know, the culture starts at the top. And so if people at the top are thoughtful, uh, they learn other people's names, they meet with them, they're not rushed, uh, you know, they, they do the really polite, nice, thoughtful things. It spreads throughout the culture. And uh, so it was very simple things, but it started with this expression, bring humanity back to air travel. You know, make it more humane. Make it more humane. That's the calling word across businesses, across industries, just not airlines. Yeah, for sure. And even more so now, 
people have been traumatized by COVID and being separated. And there's a lot of trauma. I think businesses are going to have to go in and rebuild their cultures. And they're also going to have to figure out how to build relationships the way we're doing now on Zoom. You know, I, I've never met you. You've never met me. So how do we develop a, you know, a, a, a rapport, a relationship? And you can do it. It just, it takes longer. Uh, it takes more interactions, but companies have to, are going to have to get better and better at that. It's all about being intentional about building those relationships and culture. Yeah. And talking about culture, uh, one of the reports that I was reading that the analyst made about JetBlue was it was one of those airlines that was built on niceness and personality. Very odd reference to an airline company, niceness and personality. Again, how did you conceive this to be the mantra of JetBlue? And what were the, some of the things that the board did? What were some of the things that the executive leadership team did to create that uniqueness in that industry? Like I said, the industry had a bad reputation for bad customer service, levying unwanted charges. In the midst of that, you created a unique identity for yourself. Just help us to walk us through those uh, changes, the thought processes that the team had. Well, it started out with this idea of really being nice and being hospitable and training people in hospitality. But then when complaints came in, we addressed them. We tried to fix them for people. We did favors for people. You know, we would forgive charges. Uh, I had somebody one time uh, call me up and said that she left her laptop on the plane. And so I called uh, the CEO who then contacted the flight and they found the laptop and we had it back to her the next day. Uh, I just left my laptop top on a plane and they said, oh, we can't find it now, you know, and so it was just the difference, you know, as we got right on it, got the laptop back to them, they'll never forget that. We have a lot. And then what we would, one of the things that we, you asked how we would do it, we celebrated those kinds of things. So I remember one time uh, somebody had left some tickets in the seat back pocket and uh, our flight attendant found them. And because they were important tickets, she chased down who the customer was and drove the tickets to their hotel. Well, that person will never forget what JetBlue did, you know, when going out of the way. And so little things like that. And then the fact that I would start board meetings sometimes by telling a story of what somebody had done. I remember one time I had, uh, so I actually teach at Stanford and one of our deans uh, was on the flight and she was way in the back with her baby. And uh, she got off as the last person off the plane and she got to the carousel her stroller was broken and the captain was still around. So the captain uh, went and reassembled the stroller, put it back together and got her off safely. And she never forgot that. And so I wrote an article in Forbes about Captain George Force. And then I uh, started the next board meeting reading the letter that she had sent about how she'd been treated. And so you celebrate, you know, acts of kindness. You notice them, you celebrate them. You help people do them. People feel better about themselves. They feel their jobs are more meaningful. And it does start at the top. You know, if the top never recognizes anything like that, it can easily die. Oh, very true. And Joel, for a lot of the folks who are listening to this particular conversation, and some of them are leaders in their own right, they would be thinking, what would Joel has as an advice for us to not dilute our culture? As we are growing, as we are getting bigger, how do we ensure that the culture doesn't get diluted? It will be diluted. Uh, it's very hard. 
each new person brings an element that's different. And sometimes, you know, when a transplant of an organ to a body, you know, sometimes the body rejects the organ. That's traumatic to introduce new people because they bring their whole cultural experience with them. And it's different from what you've tried to create. So as you're growing rapidly and bringing people on, you have to expect dilution in the culture. And what that means, I think, is you have to do more training. You have to talk more about your values. I used to say there are a small number of values that we hold dear and we talk about them and we give examples of them. And then you have to fire people that don't live up to those values. And that's a hard thing. People don't like to do that. And what they typically do is they put them in another role. And so Deadwood builds up in an organization and that is a cancer in a culture. And so you, you have to keep cycling through. If somebody doesn't fit the culture, you have to move them on out and bring people in who do. And that's hard. And that takes time from the chief executive officer. I used to be, I used to run a, a big company. Um, and I spent 40% of my time recruiting new people. And, and there were a lot of things to do, but I just said, this is the most important thing I do is who I bring in to the company. So I spent a lot of time on college campuses. I think also hiring young people is one way to do that because you can then train them in the values. And young people can do more than a lot of people think. You don't need to get somebody that's a 40-year experience engineer to do everything. You can hire young people, train them in your culture, bring them up and do some of that. So those are a few ideas. Excellent. And what's your best moment of culture that you have witnessed at JetBlue or in any of the organizations that has served? Oh, there's so many where people do kind things and build culture. I, I love it most when they uh, do something for a customer. They solve a customer problem. They're really responsible to a customer. I've given you a couple of examples so far, but there, there are a lot of things like that. Uh, I remember when I was CEO, one of the things I uh, asked our, our young partners to do is get out and talk to our tenants. This was a real estate company. I said, you guys need to get out there and talk to our tenants and find out how they're doing. If there are problems, how can we solve them? And one day my assistant came to me and said, well, you know, that sounds like good advice, but you don't ever do that. And I thought, oh my gosh, she's right. So I carved out an hour a week to call tenants. So I would call tenants randomly and say, hi, this is Joel Peterson. I'm the managing partner of this company. And I just wanted to check in with you and see how things are going. Is there anything that's bothering you? Can we do something better? At first they were shocked you know, that they hear the call, but then they really appreciated somebody reaching out. So I think you have to show by example. So that's one of my favorites is, uh, and, I, and I enjoyed it. It was fun. I learned a lot. So I'd encourage every chief executive officer to talk to customers every so often. Find out what's on their minds. Same advice there. So we've been talking to Joel, the board member. Now we would want to talk to Joel, the educator, the teacher. In New York, career as an educator, you have been interacting with numerous business leaders. How do you prepare these business le leaders for the disruptions that are coming? And what should one do to prepare for these di disruptions in the future? There are disruptions now and there will be more disruptions in the future. So, And you can't anticipate them. So you're going to have to be flexible. So what are the, I always think about what are the foundations? What are the core things that you can't rent? You have to own. And the first one for me is trust. You know, do you deliver on promises? Do you do what you say you're going to do? Do you deliver value to customers? Are you transparent with each other? So trust becomes the currency 
And you can't be trustworthy unless you uh, are somebody who has really worked on uh, integrity. And so I think it starts with you. So I think if, if you're in a management team or whatever, you say, do I, am I doing everything I can to be transparent, to be honest, to deliver on promises, not to promise more than I can deliver? You know, I want you to trust me completely. If I tell you something, I want it to be true. That's the first thing you have to do. The second thing you have to do is really be clear about what your goals are. What are you delivering? What's the value you're delivering? And many people don't aren't very clear on that. They say, oh, we're in X, Y, and Z businesses, and we do this, that, and the other, and they list activities and whatever. But fundamentally, a business should be clear about the value it's delivering to customers. You know, and so I think, and that takes a lot of work. You know, think about what it is you're delivering and why is it worth more to the customer than it costs you to build? And how do you, how, and if you're doing a good job of that, your market's expanding and more opportunities are coming to you. So that I think having, being clear about that is really important. The third thing you have to do is build a team. And that starts with sourcing great people, interviewing them, hiring them, onboarding them, giving them feedback, reallocating them and firing them. So keeping that team really working well. And then the fourth thing and the final thing is what most businesses think they need to do. That's execution. Uh, you know, how do you deliver on all of your promises? You know, how do you manage things well? And I would say that starts out with negotiating deals. It starts with running meetings. It starts with holding effective conversations, feedback session. You know, it's the nuts and bolts of running the business, getting really good at that. And so if you have trust, a clear goal, great people, and you execute to perfection, you're going to be there. It seems to be a nice array of things, trust at the bottom, which is the foundation of it, build your values on top of it, have a great team that can execute well. Yeah, yeah. Super. Joel, we'll kind of slip into a new segment on this podcast. This is called as the power of three round. The first of the power of three round with Joel Peterson. Three advisors you wish to pass on to the next generation of business leaders. So I would kind of start with what we just talked about. I would say, you know, it starts with being trustworthy yourself, which means that you have to have high character, high competence, and a high level of commitment. If you have character, competence, commitment, you're going to be trustworthy, and that will become the currency for your life and for building a great business. And then I think I would work on having a clarity of objectives, really being intentional, and then finally surrounding myself with a great team. I think if, if somebody did that, they would find all kinds of opportunities coming their way. Your three lessons learned from your career's failures or setbacks. Yeah, why do people always want to talk about failures? I don't know about that. Um, there is something that one can learn from failures more than success. Yeah, I, I agree. Well, I think the first thing is to not let failure bother you if it's a failure of results. Everybody's going to fail to deliver what they'd hope. Not, you don't get a, I, I don't know the grading system in India, but in, in America, it's A, B, C, D, uh, F. And you're not going to get an A on absolutely every test and every course and everything. And failure of results is not fatal. Uh, and so the only failures that tend to really last a long time are failure of character and failure of effort. So I think if you would just really focus on, I'm going to, I'm going to always be honest and transparent and I'm going to work hard at it. 
sometimes I won't get great results. So that's, that's a mindset around failure. And, and I think if you never fail, so there's some people who are kind of perfectionists who want to never fail. I would say to them, they're not trying hard enough then. They're not trying things where there's risk. And so you ought to be failing from time to time. So stretch your, your vision a little bit and fail. And then if you're betrayed, one of the kinds of failures that people run into is that they are betrayed. They've trusted in the wrong place. This is one that I've made a couple of times. And the only way that I've learned to overcome that is forgive. You know, forgive and move on. Uh, there's no reason to go back and relive the failure. That's the natural thing to do. But for me, that kind of a setback, you're better off leaving it behind than moving on. Three routines first, that has made a difference to your personal or professional life. Yep. I think the first one for me is getting up early. You know, I get, I start my day really early and I go into work at maybe four in the morning and I get a whole day's work in before anybody else shows up. And that has made a big difference. And then I go home. I'm at home for dinner with the kids at night, so I don't stay late. For me, that's made a big difference. It may not be for everybody. The second thing for me is um, I've solved not, you know how people talk about work-life balance and they always feel stress between how much time and pressure they're spending on work and how much on family or personal or other things like that. I've been solving for harmony rather than balance where they're in opposition. I try to say, how can I harmonize these two? How can I make them work together? And so that's been a really important kind of a routine. And then finally, traditions. I've, I've had lots of traditions that I've done for 40 or 50 years, and I just do them over and over again. And with family members and people that I work with, they come to expect them and they look forward to them and they become fun. And you don't have to work as hard if there's a, an expectation. So those are routines that I, I have. That's nice. Any tradition that you would want to share with us? Well, uh, one that, that I love is we don't have kids at home anymore, but when we did, anytime a child had a birthday, the whole family went out. We sat around the table together and each person would say, what do I love about person X? So if it's a daughter, what do I love about Sarah? And everybody would say, I love the following thing about Sarah. And you could see Sarah start to beam. You know, and the kids would get choked up talking about each other. And just to hear that from each other really became a special thing. And they started to live up to the expectations of the other. It became a really fun thing to do. So that was a tradition where we didn't have to think about it. We just knew, oh, it's so-and-so's birthday. Time to go out to dinner. And we're going to, dad's going to ask us, what do you love about such and -and so-and-so? So very cute. Thanks for sharing that, Joe. Continue with the power of three rounds three book recommendations that you would have for our listeners? So I read a book one time called A Short History of Nearly Everything by Bill Bryson, who's a wonderful writer, an Englishman. Uh, And it's so interesting because it's how did we discover all the things that we've discovered, you know, and there it's a lot of anecdotes and stories. So I love that. Uh, I love The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. Uh, which is a story of revenge and ultimately reconciliation. But it's a really powerful story. I read it over one weekend when I was in business school. I was stressing out over exams. And I said, I don't know how to get my mind off this. And somebody who was at Harvard Law School said, I'll tell you what, if you'll read this book, you'll forget about your studies. And I read it cover to cover in a weekend. And then the final one for me uh, is called A Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. And it kind of describes, H-A-I-D-T, 
And it kind of describes why do we have all this tension in the world over these different viewpoints? And everybody's really has a point of view that's worth listening to, but somehow people have lost the ability to talk to one another. So that one was really quite helpful. Great. Thanks for those wonderful recommendations. The last of the power of three round, Joel, three best insights that you have received during the course of your career. Yeah, I would say uh, one of them is time management. All you have is time. If you can figure, and that get, kind of gets to this idea of getting up early and getting all your hard work done before everybody else is in there. But time management, you know, doing things that are important, but not urgent. You know, everybody will do what's urgent, but you let go a lot of things that are important. I used to work with a fellow who just managed his inbox. He did what came across his desk and he missed all the really important issues. Uh, so I think allocating your time appropriately, figuring out what's important and really focusing on that first. The second thing that I would say is uh, the importance of culture. It was Peter Drucker who said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Culture is really powerful. People can copy your strategy. They can't copy your culture. Culture is built a conversation at a time, a hire at a time, a decision at a time. And so really be thinking about cultural implications. And and I guess the other one is really related to that whole thing is uh, the conversations you have are what build or destroy trust. So you you do you you do that kind of a molecule at a time, a conversation at a time. And so I would say uh, you know, focusing on that is a really important uh, thing. I see a deep embedment of culture in everything that you do. Exactly. Super. Joel, that was the power of three round. Thank you for uh, <laughs> sharing your perspectives there. No discussion is complete with Joel without talking about the 10 laws of trust. What is the center theme of this book and why is it important and relevant in current state? So I think it's more important than ever. Uh, the fundamental theme is that trust is the lubricant for smooth operations. Things move faster. They move better. There's less litigation. You make more flexible kinds of decisions because people trust each other. They're not building power or whatever. They really are solving for the same thing. So high trust is really important. And I think the second thing is that you can actually be intentional about it. If you're in a low trust organization, and if you're high enough in it, you can set a standard. And that's the idea between these uh, laws. It's like anything. If you follow the law and you observe what matters, that you can actually build trust. And so you can build trust in a in an organization. The, the alternative is power. You know, if you don't have trust, then you have to have power. And power is usually people have the ability to fire, uh, to reward, to punish. Whatever And power is not much fun to live with. People abuse power. So reward and punishment is not as great as really if you trust and you're solving for the same thing. Everything not only goes faster and is more flexible, but people have more fun with life. So what practices do you recommend leaders to follow in order to enhance their trust within the organization? So the first thing I would say is make sure that you are trustworthy. And that starts out with assessing your values and assessing where your limitations are. One time I did that and I found that I really had some problems with how I was behaving and, and they were kind of egocentric, self-centered kinds of things. And so I developed mantras that I would say to myself and it took me 10 years of repeating these mantras 
to myself to change my wiring so that I didn't do this, the same awful things over and over. My, my first one I remember was, it's not about me. You know, I had to tell myself that whatever these problems are, I would see them through my lens, my life, how it impacts me and everything. And I, and I just said, it's not about me. It's about the mission. Okay. How do I focus on that? And that got me out of my own skin. So I think, you know, you can rewire yourself. Uh, I, I also learned, um, to tell myself, I have everything I need. You know, for the longest time, I would blame other people. Well, I, I would have done that, except I didn't have X, Y, or Z on time, or somebody didn't bring me this thing, or there was always somebody to blame, or always some circumstance. In America, we have this statement that kids use when they don't get their homework done. They say, the dog ate my homework. You know, the dog ate my homework. And so I said, I, there are no excuses. I have everything I need. And this sense of abundance allowed me to stop making excuses. Uh, and the third one I used for on myself was, I am not my emotions. Because I would feel these emotions arise in me and I would say, well, I have to do it. That's how I feel, you know? And it just helped me to say, I'm not my emotions. I don't have to behave how I feel. That's not a, there's nothing imperative about that. And so by repeating those mantras over and over for years and years, I really got beyond blaming others, beyond being self-centered, and beyond, um, you know, kind of just responding to my emotions. And so I, to me, that's, that's how you build that. That's the first step in building trust. And then there are others as you go on. Get the book. <laughs> Absolutely. For all the listeners out there, you will see the link to Joel's book in the show notes out there. So we are talking to the multifaceted uh, personality Joel here. He spoke Joel, the board member. Joel, the educator. Now we are talking to Joel, the author. Other book that you recently published is Entrepreneurial Leadership. While I again nudge my listeners to go out and uh, read this particular book as well. What is the key essence of this book? I'm sure from close quarters of looking at your students, many of whom are great business leaders themselves. What are some of the key ingredients of this book and the takeaway for somebody if they were to read this particular book? Well, I think one of the things is there's an entrepreneurial mindset. You know, what entrepreneurs do is they go and uh, organize people, capital, plant and equipment, ideas that they don't own necessarily. They have to figure out how do you deliver value without owning everything? You know, how do you organize other people to deliver stuff to create value? And I find entrepreneurial leaders are some of the most creative people in society. Uh, I, I just wrote a quick post for LinkedIn where I quoted, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, who said, you know, many are stubborn in the pursuit of a path they have chosen, few in pursuit of the goal. In other words, you know, people get started on a path and they're really committed to the path, you know, and they stick with it. And you know what Nietzsche is Hardness saying? Is the goal. Yeah. Look, keep thinking about the goal and find another path. I find entrepreneurs are the best at that. You know, they just say, well, I've got to get to this objective. Therefore, I'm going to go this other way. Oh, that didn't work. I'm going to get a ladder. That didn't work. I'm going to, you know, and they figure out ways they get to the goal though. And so to me, I just felt like entrepreneurial leadership was missing in the world, certainly in the world of politics. Politicians are so bureaucratic and so unable to see around corners, which is one of the things that entrepreneurs do. They tend to see things before they happen. 
and uh, they they have this kind of wisdom that allows them to anticipate consequences and to change paths, and so they're flexible. So what I wanted to do is say, here are the here are kind of the rules and laws of entrepreneurship that allow you to be successful. I was actually going to write the book and call it Running Stuff, and uh, Harper Collins was my publisher, and mm-hmm. uh, they came back to me and said, you know, we tested the title. And it was a bunch of joggers, you know, runners that got interested in it. So they convinced me to call it entrepreneurial leadership. And I think it was the wrong choice because I think running stuff is really what it's about. How do you run stuff to get results? And so I'm kind of disappointed that they talked me out of it. <laughs> running stuff, just not running or running stuff is just not business. Running stuff so that the world runs. Exactly. Exactly. Uh- and entrepreneurial leadership will help you run an institution, a family, a business, a laundromat, you know. Yeah. And as you have seen a lot of these leaders in close quarters, is there a secret sauce in them that makes them so unique and so different than the rest of the world? Actually not. You know, everybody can learn to be a leader. There are skills that you get. People, there's this old expression, to the manner born, which means that they were born as leaders. They had opportunity. It's kind of like the caste system in India would say, okay, they're different castes. I, what I've found is that a lot of the skills of leaders are spread across every kind of person. So I've found that you know, I actually, one of the courses I teach at Stanford is a leadership course. And what I try to do is expose students to every kind of leader. So they come from every walk of life. They're international, American, men, women, transgender. I mean, they're everything. You know, and these talent, I mean, it's fundamentally leadership is about the ability to get other people to some place they want to go, but don't know they can get there. But it's where they want to go. You're helping them. You're not help, You're not forcing them to get someplace they don't want to go. That just doesn't work. Leadership helps them organize and overcome obstacles and things they didn't think they could overcome. But you help them realize who they are. And that's what great leaders do. This show is all about creating ripples of inspiration. If we were to share your inspire someone today message to all the listeners out there, what would be Joel Peterson's inspire someone today message? So uh, my very, I'll, I'll use my very favorite quote uh, in the world, which is by a, a jurist by the name of Oliver Wendell Holmes, who is a famous uh, jurist in America. And he said, uh, and I'll probably have to translate this a little bit for you, but he said, I would not give a fig, which means I wouldn't give anything a fig. I wouldn't give a fig for the complexity, for the simplicity, this side of complexity. But I would give my life for this simplicity, the other side of complexity. And so what I, what that means to me is a lot of people get hung up in the complexity, you know, because problems are complex. And so they'll, they'll start in, and the simple thing is never the right answer that you first think of. It's too, too simple. You get into the complexity, and the problem with complexity is people can't execute. And it's too complicated. You just can't get a team to execute on. If you keep thinking about it and keep working on it and simplifying it and everything, it gets to a new simplicity. That's the simplicity, the other side of complexity, and people can execute on that. They can be inspired by it. It can stick with them forever. I had a, I had a quick example of that. I, I asked a bunch of students to tell me their life goals. And uh, one of them said, my goal is to run a marathon at age 35 faster than I ran it at age 25. Well, that sounds like a silly goal. 
But you know what that means is he has to train. He has to eat right. He has to get sleep. So he, he had comprised a bunch of these complex things that he has to do into the end point, And he could remember that. And guess what? At the end of the quarter, every student could remember his goal. And I saw him 10 years later. And uh, he said, I've run the marathon at 35 faster than 25. So it was inspiring to him. And then I asked his classmates and, I, and they said, oh, yeah, he's the guy that was going to run the marathon faster. So it's that idea, the far side simplicity. I think that's a really important idea. Wonderful. Joel couldn't have asked for a better set of insights and the nuggets than coming from you. Thank you so much for taking time and sharing your experience, your perspective with me and with all my listeners. Thank you, Sri. Nice, nice to meet you and see you. Take care. Thank you for listening into today's edition of Inspire Someone Today. It's been a privilege to bring in these conversations. If you like this episode and have any feedback or comments, do mail me at inspiresomeonetodaypodcast at the rate gmail.com. Inspiring someone is like creating ripples around us. If you like what you listen, feel free to share them and let's create ripples of inspiration. Do not forget to follow me on my Instagram handle at the rate inspiresomeonetodaypodcast for all the latest updates. This is Srikanth, your host, signing off. And until next time, keep inspiring.